Well, welcome back to the When I Heard This podcast. My name is Nate Robinsoff, and I'm here with Joseph Tillman. How's it going, Joseph? I'm I'm doing really well. I mean, I'm doing really well today. Good. Yeah, man. That's great. I'm ready to do this thing. Well, we're going to do it. Fantastic. Right now. Perfect. Cool. Just up top, we have a Patreon. Go there, type in When I Heard This podcast, and there's a $5 tier, and you guys can send us money that way. All the money we use on there will be used to push this podcast out on social media. So we really appreciate that. Today, we are talking about the inspiration of scripture. Uh, My first question is going to be, what does that even mean? But uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So yeah, when we talk about inspiration of scripture, before we get into a definition of it, we're just going to be talking about Bible today, right? Bible. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about Bible. What is it? Why do we care? Those Why kind of Bible? Things. When Bible? How Bible? Where Bible? What Bible? What Bible? <laughs> exactly. So, inspiration of Scripture. Uh, what is inspiration of Scripture? The word inspiration or inspired literally means breathed out. And so it's the idea that God breathed Scripture. When we say inspiration of Scripture or that Scripture is inspired, what we mean by that is that God breathes. So it's it's like his movement, okay, on individuals helped to form and create the words that we have written on pages that we call the Bible. All right. So what do you mean by moved on people? So some people have the idea that... God was almost like like a parrot sitting on the shoulder or whatever of the writers and like just saying, all right, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. You know, here's what you need to say. And they're just like writing it. Almost like they're just echoing it. Or right? is there an evil parrot on the other shoulder <laughs> saying, don't write that, write this? I don't, I don't think there's a parrot on either shoulder. Okay. So, yes, yeah, so the, the way I view it, the way I see it is that when I say – you know, God moving or God breathing, using the word inspired on people. I think what we're talking about there is the movement of the Holy Spirit, okay, on people. So it doesn't mean that they're just like, it's not like they're just, their mind just goes blank and they're just mindlessly writing what they're hearing or what they are being told to to write. With wide eyes and they're (laughs) peeing themselves just sitting there in a chair. Right, like not the way this is going down. Okay. Okay, so... So God uses people, so their but their personality is intact. Okay, so in other words, like when you're reading their writings, you can you can get their personality. Like you can feel their personality. You can see their writing styles. That's all coming through. But what they're writing, though, is the Holy Spirit is moving on them. The Holy Spirit is, I'll put it this way, like leading, guiding them as they're writing. And it's almost like when it's done, it's like God's putting like a stamp on it and saying, you know, God approved. <laughs> okay. Like these words are God approved. They're they're without error. They're without contradiction. They are the, I mean, they you can say they're the words of God, but I don't want it to come across again as in we really believe as Christians, that they are God's words, but it's not because God just took over bodies and again, they just mindlessly started writing. They're being inspired. They're being moved by the Holy Spirit to write it. And then at the end, it's like God's going, yep, that's, those are my words. That's my heart. Those are my thoughts that I want to convey. Because again, you have to remember that the Bible is being compiled over a pretty lengthy period of time. Mm. And so you're talking, you know, over a period of almost 1,500 years, various writers writing in various geographical locations using different languages, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And over a period of, again, this 1,500 years, so you got these, all these individuals over all this time in different languages and different geographical locations, all being able to communicate one large story. So that's all the people that wrote the Bible and then put it all together. Yeah. So you've got all the individuals writing it, right? So right. if if tradition if you hold to the traditional view of, for example, of Moses writing, you know, the first five books of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And then going all the way through to where John is writing the last book, 
that we have in our Bible, Book of Revelation. So you've got between all of that, you've got all of these writers and authors writing all this over this period of time, and yet they're being held um, to the point that they're not. There's not a contradiction. There's not. They're not. Um, there's not a disagreement in it because again, it's one mind mm. that's inspiring all of this. And obviously, this one mind is not going to contradict with himself. In my opinion, it's, it's pretty darn amazing the way the whole thing is played out. Because it's not like, you know, we're we're reading like one book written by one person. It's one book, you'll put it that way. But it's, again, a large book that covers a large period of time using a whole lot of authors. And the fact that it can be all held together in unity is pretty amazing. So God didn't tell them what to write down exactly word for word. Correct. It was more like they wrote a paper and then kept rewriting things until they got a hundred. <laughs> I think that's probably I think that's probably closer to accurate. Okay. Yeah. I mean the sense of their writing, yeah, it's not like God's telling them word to word what to write. But they're in their writing, they're conveying the thoughts of God. Somebody said, like, hey, Moses, I need you to do Genesis for me. Yeah. And then Moses went and wrote Genesis, and he got, like, a 78 on it. And then God (laughs) red-penned a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Said, go fix this. Something like that. I mean, I think it's a little more nuanced than that, right? I mean, I think in the midst of them writing, they're probably hearing and discerning, okay, that's maybe that's not right. This is right. Like, I think they have a sense. Like they're again, they're being led by the Holy Spirit. I think there's this sense of okay, let me clarify this or let me change this. And so, but yeah, I think in their writing, yeah, they're again they're being led by the Holy Spirit. And again, they're writing for their time period. Generally speaking, mm-hmm. they're writing on the on what's going on in their history. Now, obviously, if we're attributing Genesis to Moses, obviously he's writing something that happened way. Before his life. Billions of years ago. (laughs) Not billions. Not billions. But he is but he is writing. But obviously he's these are these are stories and things that he has heard over time. And I think what he's recording, God's making sure that that is the correct accounts. I think I'm gonna keep doing that until we get to the creation episode when we when we eventually do that. (laughs) I think you should. Okay. And and I'll and I'll say this like because in essence what I'm saying is that because it's inspired, right? Because it's all God breathed with one mind, I'm also saying there's not errors or contradictions in the scripture. Right, which a lot of people would think there are. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and I and there are passages that I like in the course of you know, our, us doing the podcast, like there's there's passages of scripture I do want to directly hit and talk about because it does seem like there's contradictions. It does seem like I'm not sure that lines up with this other passage over here. And so I think those are actually healthy conversations to have. And I and I also want to say like when when I was in theology school and going through the Old Testament in particular, when I was going through the Old Testament, being exposed to a lot of different views and ideas, because not everybody holds to what I'm saying. Because mm-hmm. what I'm saying is there was individuals, they wrote the scripture, they're inspired, it's God's word, it's without error. Others, from a liberal Christian perspective, would say, well, actually, there were several editors over periods of time that dealt with the books. And so you would have like the priest, for example, the priest, all right, well, they would go into some of the the books and they'd put in their own accounts or their own thoughts. Um, You'd have another group, the Yahwist, and they would do the same. And so you'd have these different, there's different thoughts on basically in editing of scripture. I don't hold to that. There's no proof of that. There's no evidence of it. It's just a theory, okay, that, that liberal Christians have. But I also, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of learning, in the midst of examining, in the midst of trying to become aware of scripture and the different viewpoints and perspectives on it, in one of my classes on Tuesdays, we'd show up and the teacher would give us an overview of that book that we were learning, okay, for that week or two weeks, or whatever it be. And then on Thursday, basically that same teacher would then go and tell us all the contradictions and errors he believes 
were mm. in that book. <laughs> and so like a whole class period, I'm sitting there taking notes on what he perceived to be errors or edits or redactions or whatever it may be. And I'm not lying. Like it started, it started like going, I started making me question Am I holding to this right? Is this the right perspective? Or maybe there are these edits and redactions, and maybe I do need to consider something else. And there was one point I was like holding on to inerrancy of scripture by a thread. John Wesley had this saying, he was an old dude, uh, old dead dude now, and uh, but he was the founder of Methodism. And John Wesley had this saying where he said, if there be, if there be but one error in scripture, who used to say there's not thousands more? And I really think that kind of gets to the core of it in a lot of ways, because if there's errors in Scripture, then who is to trust any of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's one of the things we do kind of have to hold to is this is a sacred book. It is inspired. It is everything we need for life and godliness. And it's true. It's an objective truth. And I think if we lose that and we start, you know, if there are all of these errors in it, then who's to trust any of it at that point? So anyway, so I want people to know, like, I get it. Like, if you're if you're listening to this and you're struggling, or if you're not sure, or if you doubt that scriptures, like, I get it. I've been there where I've struggled and I doubted, and I mean, really had a crisis point at one at one point. Theology school about what I believed in terms of inspiration and errancy of Scripture. So I understand the perspective. But again, I think when you start really looking into it and examining it, you're able to kind of, oh, all those things they said were contradictions or errors really aren't that. And here's really what's going on. And I think more thorough biblical kind of exegesis and understanding original languages kind of helps break down some of those myths of error. And contradictions and kind of help settle you a little bit. Why did God pick the people who wrote the Bible to be the people that he sat on their shoulder as a parrot to write the Bible? Okay, so remember, there were no parrots. Okay. <laughs> they were, we're getting rid of the parrots. But why did God pick the people he did yes. to write Scripture? For many of them, they were prophets and they were leaders of the people. So, for example, Moses... And by prophet, just being you know one who speaks for God. Okay, most of them were prophets or leaders of God's people. So okay. you've had, you know, whether it be prophets like Moses or Samuel or you know Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, or whether it be leaders of God's people like King David or King Solomon. Obviously, you've got. Others that are more historical in nature, like First and Kings or First and Chronicles, and so. But most, you know, again, were prophets or leaders of God's people. Um, when you get in the New Testament, they were the individuals. Like, so for example, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John, were two of Jesus' disciples. Um, the Gospel of Mark, Mark got his information from Peter. The Gospel of Luke, Luke got his information from Paul. You have these individuals, and they're writing them all point on saying all this is that it wasn't like God just kind of randomly chose people. He chose people that were already speaking for him or were already leading his people. That's why God picked them because they were already in step with God. They were, in other words, they were already following God. They weren't nominal followers of Yahweh or of Jesus. They were devoted followers of God. And so he chose people that were devotedly following him who would be sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit was leading them to write. With all these people that wrote the Bible, Mm -hmm. in Moses, the book of Moses, which isn't a book. (laughs) No book of Moses. In Exodus, the book of Moses, God... uh, on the mountain, when God gives Moses the the stone tablets with uh-huh. the Ten Commandments on them, right? God uses s- something to write in the <laughs> in the stone in the yeah. stones, right? So why couldn't God just like pick the face of a mountain or something and write the whole book of whatever into it, and then have other people write it down and know that it was from God? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, you're right. So God actually did, you know, I mean, they talk about how the, you know, the finger of God writes into the yeah. stone and and the Ten Commandments are written into the stone, right? 
and and those were you know those ten commandments again were supposed to be this like like it was like a memorial stone for the people like hey this is remember this these are the things you've got to remember of course Moses ended up destroying the stones because the people were already off in idolatry by the time he got back down the mountain uh, so that didn't last very long but God has always used humanity to reach humanity. For the most part, he has always used people to reach people. I think you've mentioned that before, but for some other reason. Yeah, and and that seems to just be the way God wants to operate. Mm. Um, so, you know, to reach the people of Israel, he would he had the patriarchs, and then he had kings, and then he had prophets. I mean, this is just what he did. And so I think that's, a, that's just the way God wanted to do things, was to reveal himself through people to people. So that's, I think that's why he chose, chose to use people. Even though he could have done it himself if he wanted to. Sure. Yeah, he absolutely could have done it himself. He would have needed a lot of space to write, though. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a lot of stone, my friend. Yeah. Okay, so how can I know that the people who wrote the Bible actually wrote down what God was inspiring them instead of writing extra stuff? Because if God wasn't doing this get your paper to a hundred method of <laughs> right of proofreading everything that was said then how mm-hmm. how do how do I know sitting right. here right now sure because I was not there right that right. that God approved all of it and there was no extra extra Stuff thrown in there yeah like when Luke was writing his own book uh-huh. and you know talking himself up a little bit like I was the best disciple I mean <laughs> Jesus said that every day, and <laughs> that was actually John. But yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I I think to be honest with you, I think one of the things that's fascinating to me about Scripture is how transparent the authors are with the failings of themselves and of the others who were supposed to be the men or women of God. I mean, it's like, if you read scripture, like it's inundated with the failures of God's people. So it was more like God's leaders. It was more like them sitting there going, do I have to write this down? God, I don't (laughs) want to write this down. I mean, this is embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's embarrassing for them, embarrassing for their whole, when you read Genesis and you read about the shortcomings and the failings of Noah and of Abram and of Isaac and of Jacob. And these are the guys that we're saying started this whole movement that's, you know, that's, that were the, mm-hmm. the individuals that were charged with leading the people of God at this point. It's terrifying in some ways that, like, when you read Genesis, like, I mean, it does not paint these guys in the best light. You know, it. there's moments when they're incredible. There's moments when Noah's, you know, like you're, you're, you're just amazed and you're shocked at his righteousness and God chooses him and, you know, he builds an ark and he's, you know, he and his family are spared because of the righteousness and, man, they barely get off the boat. The dude is drunk and passed out. Um, and so it just... And they all had extra toes and stuff because of all the incest. <laughs> about all the extra toes but yeah i mean but like there's all this stuff in there and like when you read about abram abram's own failings or you know whether it you know jacob's you know he's known as like the deceiver right all of this deception he does and it's just like but these are the people that god used if i was writing a book mm-hmm. about the the men and the women of god that we are supposed to be respecting and you know like these are the right the representatives of god like i'm going to choose the best people and their best stories and that's not what happened in scripture and so here's abraham here's isaac here's jacob um, and god is known as the god of abraham isaac and jacob it meant something Mm. to be those people that this was their god and these were their their ancestors um or this is who they're, they're descended from. And it's just like, man, but really? And the same thing, I mean, even in the New Testament, the authors are, you know, the gospel writers, whether they're the ones writing that had been disciples with Peter, or they were the ones like, for example, Mark, who is actually writing 
his account based on Peter. None of them paint Peter in the best light either. Mm-hmm. I mean, they eventually show Peter's, they show Peter denying Christ, you know, as he's being taken away and betrayed and all that stuff. And, and they show Peter being afraid and being scared. They show Peter being rebuked by Jesus. They're all jealous because Peter was <laughs> Jesus's favorite. <laughs> well, Peter was, uh, Peter was the man. Uh, and, um, but I don't think they were jealous. I think they're just, I mean, cause right. They're writing the, they're writing the accounts of this is what you are to believe as the earliest Christians. This is like they're writing, they're saying, this is who Jesus was. And in the midst of them telling the stories of Jesus, they're also telling the stories of themselves as the disciples. And they're not, again, they're not painting themselves in the best light. Mm. Collectively, Jesus is rebuking them consistently for their lack of faith. And yet they're not, the the gospel writers are not afraid to write that and to show that. And I love that because I think it, again, it shows, man, this is like, I think it actually gives more credence to why we can trust them and why we can trust these books is because it's not just all, here's the, the, the best of everybody. Mm. It's here's people in their own failings. I mean, Paul even writes about he and Barnabas having a falling out and he and, uh, or I guess Luke, excuse me, Luke writes about Paul and Barnabas having a falling out, you know, but again, if you were going to paint Paul in the greatest, best light ever, you wouldn't have included that story. Mm -hmm. And yet Luke does. You know, Paul himself writes about the fact of, you know, his own issue, Barnabas, but also his own confrontation with Peter. And so, again, it just, these are the things he would normally just leave out if you're trying. I mean, they're they're trying to establish, you know, these New Testament writers are trying to establish the earliest, you know, they're trying to establish these early churches and give them ideas of what to believe and how to follow Jesus and yet they're being so transparent in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. And I just think, again, it leads, it lends toward a credence of, I can trust these people. I can trust these accounts because they're not just whitewashing everything. There's, here it is, the good, the bad, the ugly, here it is, but here's the truth. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons we can trust the people and what they're writing. Okay, humans have rewritten this Bible bunches of times no doubt. Into bunches of different languages. No doubt. And possibly put their own, you know, little I'm awesomes in there. And <laughs> and how do we know that it's still good? You're yeah. still inspired. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. It's It's been rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten a truckload. I mean, just in the English language alone. I'm going to put that on loop for like three minutes <laughs> in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> Awesome. And uh, I mean, but like in the English language alone, how many versions do we have? I mean, it's it's massive amounts, right? And so there's all these different versions of scripture. What gives us or should give us comfort, okay, is, all right, so the bulk of all these versions are using older manuscripts, okay? They're pretty much using the same manuscripts to, so, to translate oh, okay. into, the, into the English language language, for example, okay? Or they're using different languages. So if you're in Latin America and you're translating the Bible into Spanish, it's not like you're grabbing the English Bible to then translate the English Bible into Spanish. You're going to go back to the original Greek manuscripts that we have, and you're going to take those... So find a Greek to Spanish translator and then Greek to Spanish it. Correct. Okay. Yep. That's what you're going to do. It's they're all appealing back to these early manuscripts. Okay. One of the things that's amazing is, for example, we have 10 copies of Caesar's memoirs. And he wrote those, excuse me, they were written somewhere between like 100 to 50 or 50 or so BC. He's writing those at that period. The earliest copy we actually have is 900 AD. So, so that's almost a thousand years. Yeah. Right? So that's the earliest copy we have. And we only have 10 copies. That's it. So not originals, but copies, right? Not mm-hmm. not autographs, but manuscripts. If you if you use Homer, okay? And Simpson? <laughs> not Homer Simpson. Oh, okay. Sorry. Homer. Okay. Iliad. Odyssey. I was thinking right? of a different part of history. Yeah, a completely different part of history. Mm-hmm. All right. Important nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> So 
So Homer's writing in like 900 BC. <laughs> Go ahead, say it. Whatever you're gonna say. No, I had nothing else to say. I was just uh, laughing. All right. So as you struggled to keep going. <laughs> so Homer's writing in 900 BC, and the earliest copy we have of his is 400 BC. Okay. So about 500 years, and we only have 643 copies. Which is still a good number. Of, I mean, I say 643 is like only. That's a lot. Of Homer. Of Homer's. Okay. Yeah. So like we have like 643 manuscripts. That's that's quite a bit of manuscripts. Okay? That's the one where he likes his mom? That that yes. One? Okay. And <laughs> I love the way that's the one thing you choose for the whole story. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, that's the only thing anyone no. ever remembers. Okay. Fair enough. All right. That's what happens when you read things in high school. Right. Yeah. But for example, the New Testament. Mm. All right. The New Testament, written between 40 to 100 A.D., okay? Okay. So in that time frame, the New Testament's being written. The earliest copy we have is 125 A.D. So so now we're only talking 50 years or so, right? Okay. 75, 50 years to Not 50 years. Not long enough for a piece of paper to deteriorate. Right. That's what you're saying? Right. Okay. We have over 5,600 copies, of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, of, of the New Testament. So, and so by man- manuscripts, oh, of all of, the, of New all the New Testament. Okay. Right. So now the copies may have just pieces. They may not have like all of it. Right. Okay. They've got like pieces of the New Testament. Okay. And so you take these manuscripts and, and then you've, you've got some really early on manuscripts that Bible translators are using to translate scripture to. I what I'm saying is is there's a massive number of copies that are all agreeing with each other to kind of help the case in the 1940s there's all these manuscripts found in a cave and what's become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're actually copies of Old Testament scripture. And so they're dating way far back and they're all like we have a whole thing of Isaiah for example and it's pretty much word for word for what we already had with Isaiah. And so my point just being is, like, Uh-oh. all of these things that we're finding archaeologically are only bolstering how confident we are in the reliability of the manuscripts we're using. Okay. And so the manuscripts actually help us be assured that Scripture has been preserved, you know, this 2,000 years plus, you know, okay. especially going back in the Old Testament. So now you're, you're taking a few thousand years. And um, so pretty, pretty amazing, to be honest with you. So I, so when you ask the question, like, through all the changes and through all the versions and all that kind of stuff, can it be trustworthy? My, my answer is, yeah, it can, it can definitely be trustworthy. There's, there are all these variants, so like for the New Testament manuscripts, for example, you find a lot of variants in them, mm-hmm. but like 75% are spelling variants. Okay. Others are grammatical variants. There's actually only like 1% of the variants that are involving any kind of thing that adjusts like the meaning of the text. Okay. And even that 1% is like really small. So, for example, it might say the difference may be, for example, using the word our in comparison or in contrast to the word yours. There's nothing essential Right. That's being changed at all. Okay. And so I think that's, to me, the amazing part is, like, when you go through all these manuscripts, you see all the variants, and, again, most of them are just spelling variants, and then you have a lot of grammatical variants as well. When you see these things, you see, okay, yeah, there's some variants, but but the text itself, nothing is being affected, nothing is being changed by it. And to me, I think that's that's the incredible part of Scripture. So which is the best version to read? Um, learn Hebrew, learn Greek, and read the original languages. Fair enough. <laughs> but <laughs> but if you're, if you're not going to do that... Fair enough and no. <laughs> if you're not going to do that, and we're, and we're using English, mm-hmm. okay? Again, there's a whole lot of different translations that are out there, and a lot of them are really good. The only difference... In a lot of the trans, uh, the, or not the only, the difference in the translations, most of the time, it it depends on the philosophical approach to the translation. And so, in other words, is it going to be more of a literal translation, like a word for word type translation, 
or is it going to be more of a like a a longer thought for thought translation? In in any translation, you're never going to do just a strict word for word, or it would sound so. I mean, it would be unreadable, mm-hmm. right? Because it would just be, or it would just not sound right. Mm-hmm. So you're always going to have some like thought for thought, but like so for example, in a New American Standard Version. They're going from there. It's a it's a more literal translation, quote unquote. So they're going to stick more to a closer word to words. So they're going to use a few words, translate those, put them down on paper. A few words, translate those, put them on paper. Something like the new international version, which is a really popular version, is more of a thought for thought translation. So they they're going to use like a long string of words, maybe even a whole verse. And then go, okay, how can we translate this whole thought and make it read well? And so it's just kind of a different way of approaching it. So if I was to pick up a New American Standard version and read it out loud, it's going to sound a little more wooden or clunkier than if I pick up an NIV and read it. Okay. Um, And so when people ask me what's the best version to read, I say, go get a more literal word for word. Go get a more thought for thought and read both of them. Okay. And it helps you kind of get a feel for what to read. Um, now, there are people who will be like, but King James is the right one because it's the oldest one in English. That's the one that sounds like Shakespeare. Correct. That's my yeah, favorite. All, all the V's, thou's. Yes. Yes. That's okay. the best one. <laughs> that that, that is, sounds like my guy. That sounds like your guy. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm not going to say it's the best one. Um, <laughs> and so it's not a bad one. Okay, it's not a bad one, but uh, the problem is it's just not in contemporary English. You're just mad because you can't read it. <laughs> I actually like it. I could quote <laughs> Psalm 23 in 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 a in the King James version right now. It's not a bad version, but like yeah, but it's but it is hard to read. One thou art dumb. <laughs> <laughs> It's not necessarily the best version. I mean, it's again, it's it's okay. It doesn't use the most because it was written almost four hundred years ago at this point. Um, it doesn't have actually the most uh, current manuscripts, um, and by current, I actually mean the ones that have been found since then mm-hmm. um, that actually are older, that date back even further than what they had when oh. they were translating King James. There's some translate. There's some manuscripts that are just a little better. Isn't um, there a, a new King James? Uh-huh, there's a new King James. With those man is that because of those manuscripts? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. The New King James used an earlier manuscript than what the King James version had. Okay. Yeah. And so that definitely helped them be a little more accurate. Yeah, so the the New King James is again, it's a it's a it's a fine, fine version as well. Like the Bibles over the last man, almost fifty years that have come out. They're pretty much all using the same manuscripts. Okay. Yeah. Why do different denominations use certain versions of Scripture and hold to that as the most holy and most respectable version, but then a different denomination will use a different version of Scripture and and do it that way? Yeah. So different denominations will use different versions for, for different reasons. One of them is because some of the denominations actually have their own publishing houses, and so they will publish their own translations. Okay. And so the churches within that denomination will use that translation because it's been published by their denomination. Okay. Others will use translations that were that might be more in line with where they are theologically. Okay. And by that, I mean, so for example, if you lean more toward a Calvinist you know, theological leaning, you may use um, the ESV, the English Standard Version, because a lot of Calvinists were involved in not just the creation of the translation, but of the um, of the study Bible with all the footnotes and that kind of stuff oh. that give more of that leaning okay. um, to a more, a more reform, reformed leaning. Others will use different versions in, in certain denominations based on the language of the, tra- of the particular translation. So, for example, in some translations, um, they'll use the word man to refer to human. In other translations, they will always make sure it's re- it, they'll say human in it. 
Okay. And so it's just to kind of get away. It's just, it can be language based. So different denominations use different translations based really on those three things. The publishing house, a theological leaning or a language of, of what they deem to be a more kind of politically correct language. You can go to some denominations or some churches, though. A pastor may use, he may use an NIV for one year as they're going through, you know, scripture. And then the next year or a few years later, he may say, hey, just to let all of you know, now I'm using the CSB. And so, and it's just because the pastor himself has gotten into using a new translation just because he wanted something new or fresh compared to what he had been reading for the last several years. And because there's always these new translations coming out, um, I'm not going to lie, like I'm using a new translation this year because it's one of the newer ones that have come out. And I just really like the way that it reads when I'm reading it publicly. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's it, it's kind of like an in-between if you are with something like they'll kind of refer to it as like a dynamic translation where it's kind of like in between the literal and the thought for thought. And so okay. it reads a little bit better than a, than a word for word, but it, it has it, but it still leans a little more on that word to word side. I use that translation for that purpose. And so you never know what, why pastors maybe use different translations. There was a bunch of extra books called words. I can't remember that supposedly supposed to be in the Bible, but a bunch of people at a time who were important church people mm-hmm. decided that certain things were going to be official, like certain books were going to be official, and then there uh-huh. were other books that, you know, the cool ones with the dragons and the magic and stuff that weren't going to be official. <laughs> and so what happened with the, that, and who yeah. were those people, and... And who who decided that the Bible was the 66 books that it is today? And what's the deal with all that? Just to, all right, so just to kind of get us all on the same page, the, the, the Jewish scriptures, what mm-hmm. we refer to as the Old Testament, okay, they, they have been established a couple thousand years, right? I mean, so you have the Jewish scriptures, and the Jewish scriptures were accepted into what we have as our Bible, okay? So those were the ones brought into the Bible. All right. So those were like grandfathered in. Yeah, they're grandfathered okay. in. Then you got the New Testament, okay? So the Old Testament was written, the, like, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, was written right around 400 B.C. Then the New Testament writings, again, they start being written around, around 40 AD. Okay. Okay. Possibly even earlier than that, but let's say around 40. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament and there's 27 books in the New Testament. And so 66 books. So those 39 books, the Old Testament, as you phrase it, were quote unquote grandfathered in. And then the New Testament, those are being compiled within the first century AD. I mean, as early as early on as the late 100s to the late second century, most of the New Testament books are already starting to be considered canon or standard, okay? okay? Athanasius, in 367, he actually cites the 27 books of the New Testament that we have now. So he's citing those. And I think that's one thing to remember. There, There is this period of time that the New Testament is being kind of, quote-unquote, worked out. In other words, what's going to be accepted and not going to be accepted, getting to the question that you're asking. Okay. And so by 397, the Council of Carthage affirms that only these 27 books are canonical. For New Testament. For New Testament. Yeah. 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, and you put them together to get the 66 books. So that's what we have as our... Bible, uh, our Old Testament, New Testament today. What you're asking about is the books that were not included in that canon. Right. And for New Testament purposes, there's all of these letters and books that were like Gospel of Peter or Gospel of Thomas, whatever else. Most of those are referred to as Gnostic letters or or Gnostic Gospels. Okay. Okay. And there was the by Gnostic, I mean, there's this sense of like divine or secret knowledge. Okay. So Gnostic coming from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. So this there's this knowledge, this secret knowledge that individuals have 
in regards to God, in regards to Jesus, in regards to faith, really what it comes down to in these councils that are happening in the 300s, so the Council of Laodicea, the Council of Hippo, Council of Carthage, and there's other councils that are happening prior to that, but in particular in these, they're rejecting the Gnostic Gospels and Gnostic letters as not part of the New Testament because really the letters are, they are contradicting what's being said in the New Testament letters we have today. And so in a lot of ways, what is what we know as orthodoxy today or orthodox Christianity today, that's kind of what was in a fight, if you were, with the Gnostic group. Okay. And the orthodox group won out. That's the only way to know how to phrase that real well. But it wasn't like they won out and it was this oh my gosh, they won. It was, no, this was always the expected outcome. If you trace oh, okay. the, the earliest, you know, first century writers, I mean, going as early as Clement, for example, and coming and going through Irenaeus and all these other guys leading up into the 300s, they're consistently quoting the New Testament books that we have now. It's, it's interesting because sometimes people will phrase it as like, well, there's, there's these new gospels or there's these new books, these new letters that have been discovered that weren't, you know, uh, discussed or talked about when the Bible was originally being formed. And that's just not true. No, they knew about these other gospels and these other letters back then, and they were rejected at that point. And that's why they were not part of the New Testament canon. So basically, they didn't think that they were God enough to they be were, included. Yeah, they were not. They were not inspired. And so, one of the things that so when you get down to like, all right. So the question, I guess, kind of like is, all right, how did the church determine which books were actually going to make it? Like, which ones mm-hmm. were actually canonical? Right. right? There was. It wasn't like they just kind of chose randomly. The first was just like the apostolic connection. In other words, was the author an apostle or did he have a connection with an apostle? Again, for example, the Gospels, Matthew and John, apostles, they're in. Mark is writing for the apostle Peter, he's in. Luke, writing for the apostle Paul, he's in. The book of Acts, again, written by Luke. And then you get all of Paul's letters, he was an apostle. And then you get into Peter and John and Jude, like... They're all apostles. So okay? Luke wrote for Peter. Luke wrote for Paul. So was there a parrot on Paul, on Paul's shoulder, who was then sitting on Peter's shoulder? Or Mark, or Luke's shoulder? Luke's shoulder. No. Okay. Yeah. Remember, so two things. One, Paul actually had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Right. And he says he got his gospel directly from this encounter with Jesus. So Parrot was on Jesus, <laughs> who was on Paul, who was on Luke. <laughs> okay. Uh, again, enough of the Parrot. All right, no Parrots. But, yeah, so Paul is saying that he got his information from Jesus, and then he's passing it along to Luke. But Luke, in his letter, or his, in his gospel... He is very clear that he has done his research. In other words, he has historically fact-checked. He has asked, he has interviewed in what he is compiling in the Gospel of Luke and or in that Gospel that he writes and in the Book of Acts is information that he has collected as like a historian. But yeah, so there's all this, so this the apostolic connection was like, a major criteria for this, okay? And then you get into like the content, what was there in the books. So for example, the Gospel of Peter never was really proven that it was actually written by Peter, and the content alone caused it to be rejected. The content did not match the content that was in the other Gospels. Where can you read these things? Well, some of them are, like some of them we don't even have copies of anymore. Oh, okay. Some of them, and but there's others that we do. Okay. Um, I mean, you can literally just like order them off of Amazon. And then the other one is like acceptance. And so, in other words, is it accepted by the church at large? So these councils, I know they can kind of come across like they're just arbitrary councils. 
But the councils all throughout the early church was a composition of leaders from both the Eastern and the Western churches coming together to make decisions. And so it wasn't like it was just this one little select group from this one geographical area. They were, there was the leaders from all these different areas coming together to make collective decisions. Okay, so if I believe any of these texts sort of kind of, does, is that bad? There's different texts, right, that are extra biblical. In other words, you have like, like what I referred to earlier as the Gnostic Gospels, but then you also have things like the Apocrypha, um, okay. that we didn't mention before. But so the Apocrypha is accepted in, in Catholic circles; it's in their in their scriptures, and so it is found in between the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay? okay, and I think it's perfectly fine to read parts of the Apocrypha to gain some historical insight and that kind of thing, as long as you're approaching it from the point of view of it's not canon. It's okay. not, this is not inspired canon, but I don't think it's anything wrong to like read and kind of help with the historical parts. Now, some of the Gnostic stuff can get kind of weird. And I think, you know, when it's weird and you can kind of chunk it, it's just basically like, all right, what's aligning, what's, what aligns with scripture and what doesn't. Okay. Um, but I don't think there's anything wrong with reading it. Um, and again, Apocrypha can actually be pretty helpful. Um, in reading some information. I mean, the letter of Jude actually quotes from the Apocrypha. And so even Jude is pulling from the Apocrypha. Oh, really? Yeah. Or not not quotes, but he like alludes to a story in the Apocrypha. Oh. And so so even Jude's pulling from that. And so, um, again, not as canon, but just as historical um, information. Okay. And so, or as, you know, and so I think it's perfectly fine to... To, to read the Apocrypha. The Bible was established when? when, let's, what, when let's, say late, let's say late 300s, so, you know, 390s. Okay, so why has God not inspired anybody to write anything else since then that has since gotten added to the Bible? Yeah, because, again, I think it kind of goes back to the whole canon part. Okay. Just, this is the standard. Um, this is the standard of belief. Um I love the way that Peter phrases it, that, you know, everything we need for life and for godliness is found in Scripture. And so there's no sense, there's no, there's no sense in needing anything else to speak toward a canon or a standard of belief. Okay. And again, I'm not saying there's not individuals that have revelation on God or revelation on his word, hear from the Holy Spirit. But the canon becomes like this objective point of reference to always come back to. I'm not having to discern, well, is this new part that sounds a little bit different than canon? Is it now canon? And does it supersede what was originally written? Like, no, like this is our objective scripture that we're able to go to and to discern again that which we need for life and for godliness, for faith, and for living out our faith. So again, I think other people are moved by the Holy Spirit in their preaching. They're moved by the Holy Spirit in revelation of who God is. But all of that is in agreement or in connection with Scripture itself. I should not believe anybody who says, hey, I heard from God and this should be added to the Bible today. No. Okay. No, I... I actually, uh, I actually had a, a classmate at one point who really thought that his words were even with Scripture. Okay. So he was pretty sure his his words were as inspired as Scripture. That's pretty horrifying. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what. I, that's pretty much what all of us said. Yeah. But yeah. So it seems like if God had done the finger thing. Uh-huh. Instead of telling people to write it, then I wouldn't have any questions of people's motives over the last billions of years. <laughs> <laughs> billions of years. <laughs> About what has happened to these texts since God told whoever it was to write it down. Mm-hmm. So, like, every question I've asked so far, pretty much I'm going, yeah, but they could have... Mess with it though, right. Joseph. So, yeah. So, if I didn't have questions about all these things and God just wrote them on rock somewhere, then I wouldn't have questions about it, right? So, so why? 
<laughs> why would God? Why does God want me to have questions about stuff like this when we're supposed to believe that this book is the correct everything about life? Do it. Yeah. Well. Okay. But also remember, and so I know everything's recorded in Scripture, right? Right. So it's recorded here. But remember, this is all oral. It's all passed down orally for uh, so in other words that's not helping (laughs) (laughs) okay but here's my point is that in in it being passed down orally and and in written form okay but what's happening is is that the oral tradition continues to come back and affirm the written and vice versa and so you've got this oral tradition of passing down scripture okay and and also this tradition of writing scripture. And so, you know, in the early in the early church, you just had monks writing scripture just constantly. But literally all they were doing was copying scripture to ensure that it was being preserved. I mean, they they had an archaeological discovery of a monastery and when they when they found it, they discovered that they had written so many copies of scripture that they were starting to use extra copies as uh, paper for fire. They were actually yeah. throwing it in the fire to, to use it to help them keep warm. They'd made so many copies. I think that there's just, you know, the reality of that there's so, there's so many copies written down that agree with each other, that that affirms it, and then it affirms this oral tradition that's coming down with it. And so I think there's there's the both holding together and, and I get it, like, all right, if there were these stones that were never allowed to be destroyed and all of what God had ever wanted to be written was there, it'd be there, right? Mm-hmm. I get it. But this is the way God chose to do it. And I know that's not helping your frustration or helping answer your questions of, but, uh, you know, but is it really? And so, but I think one of the beauties of it to me is once you get into the scriptures, and you really start reading it and working with it, you do see how it all unbelievably connects together to where we go, man, oh, man, this thing is, I mean, this thing's like crazy reliable. I mean, like, you know, like one of the things we didn't even touch on, for example, was according to, to one researcher, there's just about Jesus alone there's 48 prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills, okay, right. in the New Testament. And the probability that one person could fulfill all 48 of these prophecies comes to 1 in 10 to the 157th. Which is a lot. Which is a lot, mm-hmm. okay? Now, and so his is the most conservative prediction of, of number of prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus, there's other groups that place it at 191 prophecies about the coming of Christ that include his ancestry, where he'd be born, being born of a virgin, where he would die, and so on. If you took that number, so 48 prophecies being fulfilled is 1 to 10 to the 157th. If you took 191 prophecies, and what in the world that probability is, mm. right? And my whole point is, like... As you as you go through scripture and you see all these prophecies being fulfilled, and you, to me, things are become so they become amazing that all of this can be written over fifteen hundred years by all these different authors in all these different places in these different languages, and it still all connect and it still all hold together. And I think that's the most amazing thing because it's not like like Jesus couldn't control right like where he was born or the time and the manner of his birth or all those kind of things. Like that was outside of his control, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of if he was just a baby being born. Right. And so because of that, like there's, it's to me again, it's just amazing that all of this, all these prophecies being fulfilled, all of these connected points between old and new testaments, between books written a thousand year apart by different people completely and they're and they all connect and they all form this one story. I guess that's what that's what assures me of the reliability of scripture. And again, I, I've been in a place like like I've heard 
basically all the arguments of all of the critiques of every single one of these books and why they don't all connect and all the errors found in it and all the edits and the redactions and da 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 da. And I, and I still find myself going, no, it's just all true. It's, it's just all true. And I don't think that's just blind faith. I think that's a faith that's been supported by reason. But it's anyway, it's still amazing to me. So I understand maybe it would have been easier if God had just been like, bam, here is everything. But this is the way he chose to do it. And in the way he chose to do it, I guess I'd say it's worked. All right. So why do all religions need a book? Why do we need a book? Like if God is, shouldn't I be able to know God exists if he exists without being told about it in a book? I think you can know that God exists without having been told about it in a book. Okay. I don't think I came to faith because of a book. I came to faith because of an encounter with a living God. Other individuals who have never seen a book can look around and look at and go, there's got to be a creator. Right. And so that lends them to an idea of God. So I don't think that it has to be in a book, but I think what the books do for every religion that has a book is it sets down a standard of what they're going to believe and how they're going to practice their belief. And so I think that's kind of the point is it's creating a standard. Why is believing this Bible is inspired in essential doctrine? I believe it's I believe it's essential. Not to salvation, okay? Like, in other words, I didn't believe the Bible was inspired before I got saved. I wouldn't even know what the word inspired meant, right? I got saved because of faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that it's essential in in this sense, that this is, again, the Bible's revealing to me, who is this God that I say that I believe in and that I say that I'm following? Who is he and who am I in him? And it establishes clearly, you know, when we talk about white worldviews, you know, it establishes clearly, you know, origin, it establishes clearly morality, you know, destiny, my purpose. And so all of this, you know, is established within, with, you know, my identity. It's all established within this worldview of, that I find in Scripture. But I think more than anything, it's the scripture is conveying the story of who God is. And if I want to say that I am a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if I say I'm the I'm a follower of Jesus, then I better have an idea of who that God is and what that God is asking for me to believe and to do. So that's why I think like holding it at like knowing scripture is important. And then the inspirational part is to know that this this book is different. Like scripture is different. I'll say this book. Scripture is different than like picking up Shakespeare. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or even picking up a theology book. Like this book is this book is different. It is inspired. It is God breathed. It is it is trustworthy. And so therefore, that's why I believe that um, it's necessary or I don't say necessary. It's, it is essential to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Because again, I think if I don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then I can just choose what I want to believe. Maybe that's the biggest point. If I don't believe it's inspired, and then I, therefore I, I believe it's got, you know, it's got errors in it, or if it's got, I can just start choosing whatever I want to believe in. True. Right. Okay. This is keeping me grounded into a into the faith of following Jesus and what that looks like. And so I think to me that's probably one of the biggest parts. Because if I didn't believe it was inspired, then I'm not going to believe it's without error. Therefore, I'm going to just choose to believe whatever I want to believe. This keeps me from doing that. I've got to follow a consistency in Scripture. Well, that's the last essential doctrine. So. As we have discussed all of these, quote-unquote, essential doctrines, my real heart, my hope is that, again, for individuals that are in the midst of deconstruction, are considering deconstruction, or maybe just have questions about what is it that Christians actually believe, and does it actually make any kind of coherent sense 
I hope that this has kind of helped in that conversation, maybe helps answer some of those questions. And the gist of what we're getting to is, and, and saying the things that are essential is that, hey, there is, there is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this triune God, and that faith in Christ is our way of salvation, and that He is the only way, and that Scripture is reliable in, in showing us what is needed for life and godliness, for faith and practice. And so I really hope that that's kind of what's happened in the midst of the Essential Doctrine conversation. And again, I just I, I pray that it's helped people grapple with and understand some of these doctrines in maybe uh, a more deeper way than you have before. So this is going to be our last podcast this year. Mm-hmm. We are going to take two holiday weeks off yep, because yep. no one's going to listen to podcasts over those times anyway. <laughs> and Joseph and I like our families enough to spend time with them. This is true. So we're going to be doing that. We will be back on the 9th of January with we, we kind of finished up a a little series, I guess, mm-hmm. with this stuff. And so we will be coming back with a, a new topic, new uh, new stuff. Yeah, buddy. Um, so we will see you guys then. This has been the When I Heard This Podcast. You can follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Rumble. You can go to our Patreon. We have a Patreon. Type in when I heard this podcast and Patreon, and you can. Uh, there's a five dollar tier, and any money we get from that, we will be using to push this podcast out on social media. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Like and subscribe everywhere that you listen to it because that helps us. We haven't really mentioned that before, but that helps. That helps us get it out there farther. That's easy ways to do that. True. You can follow me at Nate Robinsoff on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Joseph on Instagram at Rev Joe T. This has been the one I heard this podcast, and we will see you guys on January 9th. Sounds good. Bye.